Welcome to Piano Rhapsody, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow the musical journey of an amateur piano player who is striving to play advanced level works one day. Specifically, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which is where the podcast gets its name. Every week, we break down one of the pieces that I encounter along the road to this goal, ranging from the 18th century all the way up to modern day. We'll explore the history surrounding the work, examine the music within, and hopefully we all walk away a little more informed and appreciative of classical music. Surprise! We're not quite done with series 24 yet. This is episode 24.3, the third and, truly this time, final episode of the series Music in the Time of COVID. I had originally intended this episode to be the first episode of the series, but due to some aggressive email filters sending everything to my junk folder, the interview process got a bit delayed. Thank you, modern technology. But I'm pleased to report that I had a chance to interview a third composer to round out this series of episodes. So this is somewhat of a bonus episode, but it's one that I intended all along. This week's pieces were taken from a work titled Isolation by Charlotte Botterill. It's a collection of 15 piano miniatures that she wrote during the first COVID-19 lockdown. I discovered Charlotte through Twitter, and it was actually her posting of the debut release that inspired this whole podcast series. The pieces cover a wide array of moods, like loss, longing, and frustration, and they come from a variety of inspirations, like a summer rain, the 75th anniversary of the ending of World War II, and the riots following the murder of George Floyd. Across 15 pieces, this collection tells a story of life during the pandemic, and how we dealt with a hand that nobody wanted to be dealt. During my interview with Charlotte, we discuss all of these topics, and dissect two pieces from her isolation collection. Hope you enjoy. Well, thank you so much, Charlotte, for taking the time to talk to me this morning. I wanted to get started right at the beginning, so why don't you tell me a bit about when you first realized your love of music, and how did you propel that passion into a career? Okay, um, well, I've um, always been surrounded by music. I've been brought up in a musical household, so my mum's a piano teacher, and my dad's a Hammond organ engineer, and um, so I've always had music as part of my life, basically. It's never not been there. Um, my mum likes classical music, my dad likes jazz, so lots of different influences straight away. Um, I think I probably first realised I really, really loved music when I was about 12 and I discovered Queen and I just got obsessed with Bohemian Rhapsody and I would just listen to it literally on repeat again and again and again, and again for days on end, just trying to like figure out what was going on. Yeah, <laughs> I mean... You know, that's a complex one that could take many years to figure out what's going on with that song. <laughs> but it's a great choice. It's like a, it's a pop song, but I've never heard a pop song like this before. And it's got rock and it's got opera and it's got everything. So that's when I first um, fell in love with music and got back into playing the piano again when I was 12. Um, I learned when I was little, but I, had, I didn't play for a few years. So I picked up again then. That was falling in love with music. I never really, I don't think I really took any sort of conscious career direction kind of steps because I didn't know what I wanted to do ever. Um, other than I like music, I would like to work in music or maybe theatre or something in the arts of some sort. But I did all the, so I did music um, at school, like GCSE and A-levels did our school qualifications. 
then after school I didn't go to university straight away because I still didn't know what I wanted to do so I worked in a music shop for a couple of years um, and then I got bored with that and decided that I just really wanted to know how you write music on a sort of grander scale I wanted to know how to orchestrate basically how to write for a whole orchestra how do people decide that the woodwind will play this and this instrument mm. will play that and that kind of thing so I went to study composition at university just out of curiosity more than ever habit like intending to make a career out of it or anything mm. um and then by the end of that I kind of I was like oh I do quite like composing and arranging maybe I'll see if I can be an arranger or a composer or something like that um so I did a lot of freelance arranging work um musical transcription work and like that sort of thing for a few years um also did piano teaching as well because you know usually when you're a musician you have a bit of a portfolio career going on to try and bring in all that income and then it was sort of only a few years ago that I kind of became I got more back into composing as a sort of a forefront of something I wanted to do so I think that came about mainly when I entered a couple of um, composing sort of call for scores competitions those sorts of things and I won one for the Trinity College London exam board. They do one of our ex piano exam systems. And yes, so I won one of their composing competitions, got a piece published in one of their syllabus, which is they're still current now. It ends at the end of this year. Oh, that's great. Uh, and from then I was like, oh, maybe I can do more of this. And yeah, sure. From there. <laughs> Excellent. I noticed on your website that you describe yourself as a composer of no fixed genre, which I, I think is very interesting. I'm, and I'm starting to believe, or I'm starting to get the impression that this might have something to do with this queen love of Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, does it mean you set out to avoid genre conventions altogether, or do you just find that your music spans multiple genres like Queen does, um, and you can't really just categorize your music as one? Yeah, I think um, the latter mainly. It was interesting, the Bohemian Rhapsody connection, actually. I didn't realise that <laughs> until literally five minutes ago when I was thinking about what made me sort of get it, what made me love music. And I was like, oh, this is an interesting connection here. <laughs> um, but yeah, mainly the latter. I think because I draw influences from so many different types of music um, and I use them all, then sometimes you come out with a piece which sounds a bit more like a sort of jazzy piece, or sometimes I come out with one that sounds a bit more sort of classical or a bit more romantic or a bit more modern contemporary classical and sometimes I don't know maybe it just sounds like me which I think is what I'm looking for in the long run but yeah it's that's why I find it quite hard to classify it in sort of genre ways. You also mentioned one of your goals with music is to capture moments in time and to conjure an atmosphere and to me this almost sounds like a form of musical photography do you find that comparison at all fitting to how you approach music or do you take some inspiration from a sensory experience and translate it to a page? This is also interesting because I've also always been kind of interested in photography <laughs> and have recently just started getting into that. So I guess these sort of ideas do kind of marry up for me. When I was writing my isolation miniatures, then definitely it was very much sort of capturing a moment, very much like a sort of photographic sort of snapshot in a way and just things can pass so fast can't they ideas or moods or feelings anything events they can just sort of be gone and that's it and there's something which I do like about just trying to capture that and have it in you know a sort of audio audible kind of way rather than a visual way which you would with a photograph which I think is is interesting to me sensory things I definitely definitely like to 
specific sort of sensory um, stimulus sometimes as well. So wrote a piece recently about sitting watching waves at the sea and that kind of thing. So you know, where the sort of the water breaks against the cliffs, this is kind of this is interesting as well. So all the yeah, all these little details, all these little places that what um, inspire music for me. So aside from these uh, snapshots of time, do you ever find inspiration from other composers or works of the past? Um, yeah, I think I take less musical um, inspiration from composers. I probably do, and I just don't realise what I'm taking from who and where, because everything we hear will sort of become absorbed as part of us, and we're going to put that out into the world some way, in, in a way that makes sense to us, or the way we interpret it. I definitely am quite influenced by Sati. I really like his very sort of open, empty kind of melancholic sound. And I also like he was kind of almost like a precursor to so many of the different minimalist composers that came after him before his time. He was very ahead of his time. I like that. So I would say he's probably quite a big inspiration to me. And a few people have sort of mentioned they can hear that. Um, I really love Debussy. He's got such beautiful harmonies and everything. And someone else has sort of said, oh, I can hear a bit of Debussy in that one um, and these sorts of things. So since you already mentioned isolation, let's jump right into that. In 2020, for the audience, in 2020, you released a debut album called Isolation. And this was a collection of 15 piano miniatures that you wrote during the initial COVID-19 lockdown, which for you in England began in March, March 23rd, 2020. You wrote and organized them in a weekly diary format, and they span a wide range of tone and emotion. And this is the piece that inspired this whole podcast series. So I'm so glad. I know we had some communication mishaps, um, but I'm so glad we got a chance to do this because you were the one I had in mind and I wanted to interview first. So um, I thought it was such a fascinating idea to capture this time period in music and you did it so brilliantly and across such a spectrum of emotion. Uh, Your approach to music seems like a perfect fit to document this complex gamut of emotions that ran throughout this time. So I'm curious about this process when you wrote this collection of works. Were you sitting down every week with the intention of creating a snapshot of pandemic life, or did this start out as more of a a therapeutic process? Um, Yeah, interesting, because it's kind of both. So it started off as definitely a therapeutic thing. I, I am quite an outdoors person. So I did not get on with the lockdown very well initially. Um, normally, I'm hardly ever at home. I'm sort of out almost every single day of the week. And I love seeing people and interacting with people face to face and be, just being outside, basically. At the time, I was living in a city centre flat in my like hometown, right on a main main road. So that this sort of the change of uh, lifestyle I found quite difficult just to be confined to this flat the whole time without any outside space, without being able to see anyone. So it very much began as a therapeutic process for me because I also, this is another reason why I compose in general, is I'm not always very good at vocalising what's happening at the moment, like in a particular moment in time. I find it much easier to play something or write something which is kind of says how I feel better. So that's how it began. And after the first sort of week or two, I think it was, I just sat down at the piano and just started, sort of started playing and that kind of got out a lot of the negative feelings. So that was nice. And I wrote it down. And then I was learning to use a new piece of notation software at the time. So I thought this will be quite useful. I'll write it up into this notation software so I can learn how to use that. So I wrote a couple for that, like therapy and the, the notation thing. 
But then it also became like a composition exercise for me after the first two or three, because I was meant to be working on a different project. And as lockdown happened, I just did not have the motivation or the inspiration to work on something that's quite happy <laughs> and quite, quite upbeat. So um, again, I was like, I've forced myself to sit down every week, once or twice a week and write a miniature and just finish it each day um, and then not add to it at all. Um, as a sort of composition exercise in a way just to try and get things going again get the juices flowing and then when I realized what I was doing and what I was writing about something different in the pandemic each day and how I was feeling I thought this is quite interesting actually maybe this would be an interesting way to document it so as time progressed I kind of looked at what was going on in the world a little bit more and maybe and writing about those sort of things as well so it's a journey of everything <laughs> yeah it sounds like it one of my favorite miniatures from your set is called West Coast Longing, and you wrote it on April 28th during week six of the lockdown. It's a piece that elicits a familiar pandemic feeling that I actually discussed with another composer named Frederick Viner on a previous episode, and it's that want of escapism. During this time where we're all stuck indoors, we're desperate to be somewhere else, basically anywhere else than inside. Uh, what was running through your mind on April 28th, 2020, when you wrote this piece? So we were having quite uncharacteristically warm weather for England at that time of year. And I did, I just wanted to be outside. I wanted to be somewhere quiet, not with street noise, because despite being a pandemic, because I was on a centre, like city centre street, we still had all the key workers and everything driving up and down, going to work. So I just wanted to be outside in the countryside, far away from everything, just sort of relaxed and being able to just take things at your own pace, do things in your own way. So it's interesting, the name West Coast Longing, I think this is something you picked up as well, on as well. For Americans, it's often means like California and things, mm -hmm. which is exactly what I was thinking of. Oh, great. OK, I wasn't <laughs> sure if that would translate across uh, the Atlantic. But um, yeah, that's definitely what it elicits to an American's mind. No, that is exactly what I was looking at. So when I was going out for our, our little one walk, one hour walk a day that we were allowed to do, um, I was listening to a lot of Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin at the time, um, particularly the song Going to California, all of oh, this. That, that is my favourite song by them. Uh, oh, really? Oh, no way. Yeah. It's one of my favourites at yeah. the moment as well. <laughs> it's great. And I just have a bit of a fascination with the 60s and especially like the counterculture in America in the 60s. So at this time I was sort of wormholing down a big American hippie Californian 60s kind of exploration sort of thing and listening to all the music from around there. So that's kind of what inspired it all. And I just thought I, I want to be, you know, sitting in a sort of weird artistic hippie-ish commune in the middle of nowhere where we're all just playing music and making art and it's just out in the middle of nowhere and everything's very chilled. <laughs> oh, I think that translates very well. It's probably why I find such an affinity towards it. The melodies in particular in this piece are beautiful. Um, they draw out this picturesque location that now I understand exactly what you were trying to evoke here. But there's also a layer of melancholy running underneath. Can you go into the more technical aspects of what the harmonic structure is that you utilize to achieve this result, this like bittersweet, beautiful bittersweet result? Sure, yeah. Um, so it's kind of based around the Aeolian mode. Um, much of the melody, the main main melody anyway, um, and the melody itself has a um, descending minor third in there, which I think gives that sort of the sadness that you're talking about in a way. Um, a lot of the chords that I've used in the melody are quite open and quite sparse, so octaves or fifth, like octaves with a fifth or a fourth in between, um, and I think that all sort of 
gives to us that sort of haunting melody. Um, right at the end, instead of ending on one of the notes from like the tonic triad, so an A, a C or an E, um, I kind of put a little bit of the, the start of the scale, but then also just added on the seventh and the ninth. So it actually ends on the ninth, and because you've had the seventh and the ninth, you're sort of skirting around the tonic note and just missing out from the third. And again, I think it just kind of gives that sort of sadness, that sort of hang mm. in the air. Yeah, never letting it quite resolve, I suppose, is it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it finishes on your on the tonic chord, so it's sort of, it has kind of resolved, but at the same time, it kind of hasn't. Before we continue on, let's listen to West Coast Longing in its entirety. So there are many pieces I could have highlighted to discuss out of the 15 because they're brilliant. But since this is the closing episode of this particular podcast series, I wanted to jump ahead to the final piece in your collection titled The Fragility of Hope. You wrote it during the 12th week of the first lockdown as restrictions were starting to let up and it seemed that a sense of normalcy was returning to the world. How did you decide that this would be the last piece in your collection? Uh, I think for me, it just sort of felt like it was the end of my journey, like my personal journey. And also mainly just because everything was sort of becoming less strict in terms of all the restrictions we had. People could sort of you know, see each other at a distance. I think I remember around like the non-essential shops were starting to open up again. And it just seemed like it was the closing of that sort of really intense chapter of the quarantine and the lockdown, the pandemic and everything. So it just sort of seemed like the right time to end it. The heart of this piece has this cheery or dare I say triumphant theme that attempts to emerge twice, but it keeps getting interrupted by these dissonant chords. Was this the central concept that you had in mind with this piece, that normal life was trying to return, but it could easily be turned around again? Yes, basically, <laughs> is the short answer, yes. Um, I feel like there was a lot of sort of rhetoric in the media at the time that everything was going to sort of go back to normal now and things were going to open and everything could be sort of, you know, gradually go back to normal. But at the same time, 
this is a new disease which is going to be around forever. So we don't know what's going to happen yet. And we don't know if they think it's going to be completely normal. And, you know, you don't know what's going to happen later in the year. For me, in the arts, this was one of the main thing areas which weren't being opened back up again in the same way that sort of restaurants and shops were. Uh, like live performances still couldn't take place. Music festivals were all sort of mostly all still cancelled throughout the summer. There were like no live gigs and things from a, like from the classical world as well. A lot of them can still couldn't put on live concerts, um, theatre, things like that. A lot of my friends who are musicians were still out of work. And like my sister's a guitarist and she still didn't have any work coming in at that time. So it just felt kind of very much like the government and media saying everything's going to be fine now and there was a small fraction of us who were a bit like mm, is it, it though yeah. <laughs> so yeah it was it was kind of about that it's probably that mood is reflected in the final chord of the piece which makes it the final chord of isolation as well it's an uncomfortable chord to sit with it's i'm not very good at naming these complex jazz chords but i think it's some variation of a c minor chord with some additions It definitely doesn't give the listener a perfect cadence and sense of finality, which I suppose is your intention with the piece. Can you tell us what you meant by this final chord and what it suggests about the future of life beyond the pandemic? Yeah, sure. Um, So yes, exactly. I did want to avoid any kind of perfect cadence or anything because I didn't feel like anything was um, resolved in a sort of conventional sense. In my music in general, I'm not a big fan of perfect cadences because I feel like life doesn't ever sort of fully resolve. It's always moving. It's always changing and evolving until we die. So maybe death is the final resolution. I don't know. Um, But in the context of this one, it's very much sort of what I was. Yeah, what I was saying. We it was the summer. And so the weather was warmer. So everything might be better for a little while because everyone's outside more. There's more ventilation. But what happens when the wind, when it's, you know, autumn and winter and all the sort of typical winter, autumn coughs and colds and bugs start up again and everything sort of spreads a lot more. So, but what will happen then? And even though we've got to the end of this first lockdown chapter, which I thought this is a good time to end it, we still don't know what's coming up for the rest of the year or the year after for that matter. Mm-hmm. So that's why I use this very much sort of letting it just hang in mm-hmm. the air, kind of bored in general in there. Great. And speaking of the future, what does the future have in store for Charlotte Botterill? What projects are you currently working on and what avenues can we find you online? Um, Well, I've got some nice things coming up this year, hopefully in the summer. um, I'm going to have a nocturne published in a collection of new nocturnes um, by living female contemporary composers. It's going to be called 22 Nocturnes for Chopin and each of the nocturnes are sort of inspired by Chopin or being the most famous piano nocturne writer. So that's going to be coming out in the summer, published by EBC Music. I'm currently working on a book of piano pieces themed around different places in London. And that's kind of in a sort of contemporary jazzy pop sort of rock kind of style, mixing all those sorts of different styles together. And there, those are my main things I'm working on at the moment. Online-wise, my website is um, charlottebotterill.com. Otherwise, I'm on all those sort of normal socials, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And I think I'm Shah Botterill on most of those because my name is quite long <laughs> to type. 
and we will put the links or I will put the links of all of those in the episode description so you can just click away and not have to remember all of those names but um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this this morning or this afternoon for you and it's been a pleasure to talk to you and I'm looking forward to checking out all your future projects thank you thank you for having me it's been great to chat with you and great to chat about music so thank you and now the final selection from Charlotte Botterill's Isolation, The Fragility of Hope. This series just would not have been complete without this episode. Thanks again to Charlotte for taking the time to talk with me and for sharing her pieces with us. I'm glad we uh, figured out the communication snafu and finally had the chance to connect. I've included links to where you could find Charlotte online, as well as the link to purchase sheet music for Isolation, right in the episode description. You can also hear all of the pieces from Isolation, as they're streaming on Spotify and Apple Music, and probably other music venues as well. Next episode, I will make good on that promise I made last week, and we'll start a new chapter on Works by Advard Grieg. Talk to you then. You can find the standalone recording of the piece we discussed today directly in the podcast feed. Check out Piano Rhapsody on SoundCloud for all of the tracks heard on this podcast and more. You can find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody or email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher and consider rating or reviewing. It's the easiest way to never miss a new episode, and it helps the podcast gain more visibility. Thanks as always for your time and your ears. And remember, the piano keys are black and white, but they sound like a million colors in your mind.